Good morning, fellas. So good to see all of you. I know we missed each other last week, and I hope you had a good spring break with your kids, family, grandkids. You're able to sleep in maybe on that last Thursday, but I know that we're so glad to be back with one another for fellowship and as we study God's Word together. Um, I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 17. We're going to finish that incredible um, chapter of John's Gospel that we started uh, two weeks ago, this high priestly prayer, which is truly the Lord's Prayer. Um, in John chapter 17, we're going to begin in verse 6. As you're turning there, just a little bit of context. Remember, uh, we are now in the beginning of the climax of John's Gospel. We're in that upper room discourse that sweet, intimate setting that Jesus has with his friends, the original, original disciples. And in the chapters up to this one, in that upper room discourse, he is training his disciples, he's teaching them things they're going to need to know after he's gone. But then in chapter 17, just moments away from his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays. It's that amazing inner dialogue between God the Father and God the Son, and we get to listen in on it. And like two weeks ago, we saw amazing things. That more, we're going to see more amazing things today. So go ahead and look at verse 6. We'll read it together. Listen to the Word of God. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and I've come to know them in truth, that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that is Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might uh, have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I'm not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. They may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. Father, I desire they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that you have sent me. 
I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful, so very grateful that you've given us the gospel. You've given us your words that we might know you and be found in you. And we're so very grateful for the family which you've called us into. You've not called us into a private faith, but into a body where we can have relationships with other brothers, these brothers around our tables. And Lord, we pray that you'd send your spirit down upon us, that you'd unite us, that you'd speak to us and transform us, that we may may be more like your beloved son. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in the blessed name of King Jesus. Amen. About 30 years ago, the late Billy Graham wrote uh, an autobiography about himself, um, Just As I Am. Some of you may have read that. It's very long. I had to read it in seminary. And if you have read it, you'll know that in that, um, in that book, he lists a whole bunch of regrets that he had in his life. One of them I thought was pretty surprising considering who Billy Graham is. He said that he wished he had preached less the great Billy Graham. I wish I had preached less and prayed more. Isn't that fascinating? I'm sure a lot of us have a similar regret. Maybe not we had preached less, but I bet we can look back on our life and say, I wish I had prayed more in that season. It's not wrong to tell other people about God. We should tell other people about God, but maybe we should spend less time telling other people about God and telling God more about other people spending more time in that conversational prayer. I'm sure a lot of us have that type of regret. Jesus didn't have that regret. Jesus, of course, is perfect. And his life is a perfect example of how we too can live deeply rooted in a conversational relationship with creator God. In fact, the gospels show us this in Jesus' life. Jesus, as you know, was a man of prayer. We've been saying that on a weekly basis. If you look at the gospel of Luke in particular, we see time after time, Luke is, is making a point to show us that Jesus would peel off by himself, to be by himself, to spend time with his father. We see that in John's gospel too, to some extent. In Matthew's gospel, he teaches us, his people, his disciples, how we too can have that type of conversational prayer, how to pray effectively. But it's here in John chapter 17 that we have the the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the scriptural account. And wouldn't it be amazing, brothers, if we could just listen in on some of our heroes in the faith and what their prayer life might have been like? I mean, if you could just sit down and Billy Graham study to hear him pray, how he prayed and what he prayed for, that would be awesome. But how amazing would it be to sit at the feet of Jesus, to listen to him pray to his father? Well, thanks be to God, John heard it, and he wrote it down for our sakes. Now, it's been said before that prayer is the language of desire. That is, the content of someone's prayer reveals what is nearest and dearest to their heart, the prayerer. So my question is, what was nearest and dearest to Jesus' heart? Two weeks ago, we saw it was his and his father's glory. He prayed for that in five verses. But in the vast majority of this prayer, Moments before he is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and later nailed to the cross, what do we see was on his mind? What filled his heart in his horde moments? It was you, and it was me. 
I'm convinced that the greatest problem in the world, but even the greatest problem for believers, is that we do not understand the depths of God's love for us. That's why we do the things we do. That's why we doubt. That's why we struggle with sin. That's why we, that's why we are enticed by the allurements of this world because we do not understand the depths of the Father's love for us. Well, in this passage, we have a revelation of that love. There's two sections. The first section is Jesus' prayer for his disciples, the original 12. Now, what Jesus says to them, or rather prays about them, we can apply to ourselves because we are disciples here in the 21st century. But as we move into the second section, verses 20 through 26, it's remarkable. He prays specifically for us, future believers, which would include me and you if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we believe in, the, as we look to these two sections, rather, we're going to see two things. We're going to see a list of things that we ought to be praying for. If Jesus prayed for them in his last will and testament, we ought to be praying for them as well. So we get a list of things that we should be praying for, for ourselves and for the rest of the church, but ultimately, we see a revelation of God's love for his people, and I hope it encourages you as much as it's encouraged me. So first and foremost, let's look at uh, this first section, Jesus' prayer for his disciples. We see this in verses 6 through 19. Now, it makes sense that Jesus is now praying for the original 12. He just got done praying for himself, specifically his glory, but his glory is bound up in the benefit of those who would believe in him, his disciples. So it's natural then that after Jesus prays for his glory, he starts thinking of the beneficiaries of his glory. So he quits praying for himself and he prays for his disciples. But before he offers up a series of four petitions, he first describes who true disciples are. And I find it extraordinary. In fact, it's significant that we understand what he says about these original 12, who true disciples are. There's two primary descriptions that he gives. First off, who are true disciples? They are those who are owned by the Father. We see that in verse 6 and in verses 9 through 10. Listen to some of these phrases. They were yours. He's talking to the Father. They, these 12, were yours. You gave them to me. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. They were yours. You gave them to me. They are ours. There's two immediate applications for me personally, and I, think, uh, I don't think I'm reading it into the text, but I think this is applications that we can pull from that, from those phrases. They were yours. You gave them. In this dialogue between God the Father, God the Son, how are believers, disciples, described? They're described as gifts. The Father gave these to me. That's the language of giftings. Now, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure no one in this room, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, describes yourself as such in relationship to God. So what religion are you? Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a gift the Father gave to the Son. I don't think we've ever described ourselves in such a way. I don't think we think of ourselves in such a way. If we think of ourselves as anything, it would be a problem child or a hindrance to the Lord or just something that Jesus had to put up with because I'm this miserable wretch sinner. It's that good old-fashioned Presbyterian guilt that my good friend Tim Russell used to describe, that Presbyterian guilt. God loves me, but ah, he doesn't really like me. That's not how Jesus describes you. He describes you as a gift. That's amazing. The second application is this, as those who are owned by the Father and therefore claimed by God, that means they are utterly secured now and forever. Jesus said the same thing back in John chapter 6, verse 39. 
This is the will of the Father, that I should lose not one, even of all of those that He has given me, those gifts, I should lose not one, but I should raise them up on the last day. Who are the disciples? They are those who are infinitely loved by the Father and eternally secure. That's significant. The other description is that those who are knowledgeable, verses 7 through 8, what does that mean? Does that mean true disciples are only those who are smart? No, that's not what it means. The key to this is if you go back into verse 6, Jesus says, the word the disciples kept. In the NIV it says obeyed instead of a kept. The word the disciples obeyed, the word the disciples kept. Now what is that word? Scholars tell us what Jesus is referring to is the revelation that Jesus simultaneously is and preached. That is the gospel. That is the word that the disciples obeyed, the gospel. That Jesus is the Messiah, that he has come from God, he is the Son of God, and he saves man from their sins through faith. That's the gospel. Now, does that mean the apostles perfectly uh, were uh, uh, obeying the gospel? They were perfectly shaped by the gospel? Not at all. Right, Because they're sinners. They're not perfect. If that was the case, no one would be a disciple because no one perfectly obeys and is conformed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is, what is being discussed here? What Jesus is referring to is that these 12 people have believed the gospel. Uh, however haphazard their obedience has been, they are unreservedly committed to me as God's Messiah. The point is, this is not a blanket prayer that Jesus makes for the world. Jesus loves the world, but he's not praying for the world. He's praying for his people, those gifts that the Father has given him. And friends, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are his people, and all of that is because of grace. This is Jesus' new humanity, Jesus' church, Jesus' people, whom the Father in love gave as a gift to his Son, who in turn in love keeps them. It's these for whom Jesus prays, his disciples, particularly the original 12. And the primary reason, brothers, that he's praying, he tells us he is about to leave them. Jesus has spent his entire ministry with these 12. They, they, all they've known about this life has been in the physical presence with Jesus, but Jesus is about to leave. Can you imagine what that was like for them once they first heard from Jesus that he was going to depart? I mean, that's primarily what the discussion has been about in this upper room discourse. He's been tending to their hearts. So even though Jesus tells them that after he leaves, after he, he dies and, and raises from the dead in the sense of the Father, he will send the helper he sent the helper to us. Jesus still knows that he will not physically be with them. And so he lovingly and pastorally anticipates their fears and our fears, their concerns and our concerns and the needs that we will have. And so he prays for four things. First off, he prays for their protection and our protection in verses 11 through 12 and verse 15. Before we dive into this little subsection, just think about how amazingly other-centered this prayer is. Jesus is moments away from being betrayed, humiliated and mocked, spit upon, abused, and murdered. And he knows that. But here in this moment, he is praying for the protection of his friends. Isn't that incredible? He knows what's about to happen to him. 
He's not concerned about that. He's praying for the protection of his friends. Practically speaking, he prays this because he knows his people, us included, face very formidable foes in this life, two of which he mentions here. The first one is the world in verses 11 through 12. Jesus has already spoken about the world in the end of chapter 15. And he basically says the same thing there that he does here. He says, essentially, the world will hate us as Christ's people because it has first hated Christ. He says, if we were of this world, that is, if we weren't disciples, if we didn't believe, if we were just non-believers going about the flow of things as everybody else is going about the flow of things, the world wouldn't really care. The world would probably love us because we're into the same things the world is. But because we are disciples... We are in the world, but we're no longer of the world. We're now united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that, the world just isn't going to like us very much. That's what Jesus is saying. We have a different worldview now. We believe there's a creator God whom everybody's accountable to, whether if they believe or not. And we believe that in the presence of this just and holy creator God, everybody's a sinful person. That the only hope for sinful man is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and once we place our faith in him, we are united to him. And now we live a life in response to him, making disciples of all nations and seeing earth as it is in heaven. That's our worldview. And the, the rest of the world doesn't really jive with that. As Christians, we have new obligations, new motivations. We primarily have a new allegiance. Our king is no longer Caesar. It's not a president. It's not the cultural ideologies that are popping up all over the place in each and every day. Our king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, the world just isn't going to like us. Now, that does not mean we retaliate. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to, to pray for the world. We're to pray for enemies. We're to even love our enemies. But the fact of the matter is, what we need to know is that by virtue of being in Jesus, following Jesus, if we're truly following Jesus, the world's going to have a problem with us. Members of our family are going to have a problem with us. Folks on both the right and the left are going to have a problem with us because our king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just a hard existence. If you really think about it, let's just be real, that's difficult because it automatically puts us in contact with everyone who does not believe in the Lord Jesus if we're faithfully following him. And so there's the temptation then to capitulate our beliefs to live an easier life, right? So that's one danger. That's one foe. The second and greater foe, however, is the devil himself. You see that in verse 15. Jesus states his conquest and victory over Satan all over the place, even in the Gospel of John. But in those passages when he talks about his inevitable defeat of the, of the evil one, notice Jesus never makes light of it. In fact, Peter, who learned from the Lord Jesus Christ, would later say in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, this is how he describes the devil. He's a roaring lion. So just have that animal planet image in your mind. A roaring lion, this predator laying in the weeds ready to pounce. That's how Peter, the apostle Peter, describes the evil one. So we have formidable foes. None of which are greater than Jesus, but are certainly greater than us. And of course, we have our own sin nature, our own flesh. That's that third enemy. So so the, so the question is, how in the world are we going to survive the onslaught of all these attacks? I mean, what hope is there, right? Well, the key is in verses 11 and 12. Jesus tells us it's, it's by the power of God's name. 
Now, what does that mean? It's not as if God's name is some magic word. They just say God's name and everything's fine. That's not what scholars say. Scholars say that in the Old Testament, God's name is basically revealing his character. So whenever you see God reference his name or name himself in the scriptures, that somehow in some way reveals an aspect of his nature, of his character. But as you come into the New Testament, Jesus tells us God has given him the new name. And as we know, Jesus is the fullest understanding of who God is. So how do we make heads and tails of this, of, of the power of God's name? I love how John Stott describes it. He says what this means, what Jesus is saying, as we remain loyal to Jesus, the truth in which he has shared with us, as we abide in him and therefore abide in his word, allowing his word to shape us, to fill our imaginations, we will be protected from all the attacks of the evil one. And then he goes on to quote Proverbs 18.10, which says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. That does not mean we're necessarily physically safe, right? Because the evil one can certainly destroy our bodies. But as those who are in Jesus Christ, he can never snatch our souls, right? That, by the way, is the main tactic, the main aim of the enemy, not just to kill our bodies, but to cause us to reject Christ. So Jesus here is praying, may I, may my people always abide in my word. May the promises of God fill their hearts, fill their minds, fill their imaginations, so the allurements of these temptations would just fade away. So he's praying for our protection. Secondly, and very relatedly, he prays for our unity in verse 11. We're going to talk more about this in a second because he prays this for a second time, for a second reason. But in verse 11, he says, may they be one even as we are one. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, his great concern in this moment would be that his disciples would be united in their diversity just as God the Father and God the Son are united. Now, why does he pray that? Well, again, he, he prays it for a second reason, but in this immediate context, I think he's praying this, desiring this for his disciples, again, for their protection. He, say, he talks about, God, please protect them and keep them, and he prays for their unity in the same breath. So let's just think about that practically. Brothers, we need each other. The Christian faith is not a Rambo religion. We're not in this by ourselves. We need one another. Right? We need each other to encourage one another. We need each other's rebuke and correction. We need someone there to, to pick us up when we fall because every single one of us are going to fall. And we certainly need each other to pray for one another. I need your prayers. Please pray for me. I can't do this by myself. I need you. We all need one another. So let's just think about that lion analogy that, that Peter uses in his epistle. How many of y'all have seen Planet Earth, you know, narrated by David Attenborough? Have y'all seen that, Planet Earth? I love that. But nevertheless, in, in almost every episode, there's at some point this giant pack of wildebeests, you know, just a giant herd, and off in the distance, there's like, like a six or so lions just laying in the weeds. It's inevitable that those lions are going to attack the herd. It's just going to happen. That's why we're watching it, right? But they never attack that giant one, that giant uh, buffalo in the middle of the herd. They can't get to it. So who do they go after? They go after that short little stubby one on the edges of the herd, and they have this little you know, tug-of-war thing going on with this little short buffalo, and they, and they just maul him to pieces. That's how Satan acts. That's how Satan goes about his business. He's going to attack every single one of us. But for those of us who are enmeshed in the covenant family of God, who have brothers in our lives, sisters in our lives, those who are united together, 
it's going to be a lot more difficult for him to get his claws into your flesh than it is for those folks who are not enmeshed in the covenant family of God. We need one another for our protection. That's what Jesus is describing here. Thirdly, he prays for their, this is incredible, he prays for their joy. In verse 13, again, remember, we are moments away from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane who would experience such great anguish, blood would drip from his brow. But right here, he is praying for his people's joy. Isn't that wild? I mean, why wouldn't he pray for his own joy? He was filled with joy. Hebrews tells us he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. But right here in this moment, he prays for their joy and all the evil, wicked things he's about to endure. He's praying for their joy. This is what he actually, I like the NIV uh, um, translation better. This is what verse 13 says. He prays to the Father that they might have or experience the full measure of my joy within them. It's similar to what he talked about in John 15 after he told his uh, disciples to abide in him, to abide in his word, to enmesh themselves in his word. And he, and he told them the reason. I, I tell you these things so that my joy might be in you, that your joy then might be made complete. That is, God gives us so many wonderful things in this life that bring us joy, but they're incomplete. They're superficial on some level until we're abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's then when we're abiding in his word that we're filled with his joy. And that's what he's praying for in this moment. I heard an illustration recently about a little girl from 1820 that was born in Brewster, New York. And at six months, she, at six months old, she got a fever that damaged her optic nerves. And by the time she was five, she was completely and totally blind. At age three, or I'm sorry, three years later at age eight, She's now a believer, a strong believer, and she wrote a poem about her blindness, and this is what she said. Oh, what a happy soul I am. Although I cannot see, I'm resolved that in this world contented I shall be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and to sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Isn't that pretty? Now, we might say, okay, well, that's cute, but she's eight years old. I mean, how she hasn't experienced life yet. Well, she grew up to be 95 years old, and she stayed true to that poem. I mentioned her at the end of my first talk two weeks ago. It was Franny Crosby. Remained blind her entire life. Wrote 9,000 hymns talking about the joy and the love of the Lord. At some point later in life, she was asked about her blindness, and this is what she said. My blindness is a tragedy. But having sight may have been a distraction from finding where true joy was found. Where do we find that joy? Can you imagine having that joy that no matter what terrible thing is going on in your life, you're filled with joy? Jesus says, I have that joy. And I want to give you that joy that I gave her that you might be filled with it. That's what he prayed for that night before he was crucified. Lastly, he prayed for their dedication. Verses 17 through 19, just a couple of phrases. As you have sent me, I have sent them. I am the sent one, now I'm sending them, so my disciples are the sent ones now. 
I consecrate myself, verse 19, that they also may be sanctified. Now, what do these verses mean? Well, on the surface, it means that Jesus gives his people the greatest purpose in the history of the world. Every single human being wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves. We don't want to wake up at the end of our life and say, well, I did nothing. We don't want to be dismayed like that. I mean, we want to be, we want to be a part of something. We want to do something. We want to have purpose. Now, the problem is most people in this world go to things that are, that are just all vanity to find that purpose, to no avail. But here comes Jesus saying, I want to invite you into the greatest purpose that humanity has ever dreamed of. I am literally changing the world, and I want you to join me in it. I want us to slay dragons together. I want us to rescue people from the dungeons. I want us to bring heaven to earth, and I want you to join me in that. And how do we practically do that? Well, we do it by making disciples of all nations, laboring to make earth that is in heaven by what we say and how we live. Jesus is inviting us into the greatest purpose. Your greatest purpose is not being a dad or a husband or a banker or whatever it is. Those are important and they're gifts and they're callings that the Lord has given you. But your greatest purpose as a human being, your greatest purpose as a redeemed man is the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives that to every single one of us. So here he is on the last night of his life before he dies. And what is near and dear to his heart it's his 12 friends, and what does he pray? He prays for their protection. He prays that they would be unified. He prays for their joy. And he prays they would be called up into the greatest purpose in the history of the world, the mission of the Lord Jesus. And brothers, I don't know if you have a hard time knowing what to pray for. Sometimes I do. Most of the times I do. This is a great place to start. Make this your prayer list, not only for yourself, but also for your brothers in this room and the churches that you belong to. But that's not all that Jesus prays for. He also goes on into verses 20 through 26, and he prays for every single person in this room specifically. This is amazing. Now, all the things that Jesus had just prayed for, those could be applied to us if you are a believer. Because if you're a believer, that means that you're a disciple. Right? And so everything that Jesus prayed for his disciples back then, we can apply to us now. But in verses 20 through 26, he gets... He gets personal. He prays for us specifically. It's fantastic. And there's two things that he does. He prays for us and he prays about us. So let's look at this. First off, he prays for us specifically for our unity. All right, so this is the second time he's prayed for unity. We see this in verses 20 through 23. Now we know there's a whole lot of things we should be praying for, not only for ourselves, but also for our church right? All of which are good that the Bible tells us to pray for. But the first thing that Jesus prays for, it's, I think it's significant. The first thing that he prays for us about is that we'd be unified. Isn't that wild? I mean, I don't think as Protestants we often make unity one of our number one priorities, but it certainly was a priority for Jesus. And the apostles picked up on that. Paul picked up on that. And he was a later apostle. Go to the book of Ephesians. You know, those first three chapters, we talk about this all the time, but those first three chapters, he had marvelous doctrines of, of, of salvation that he spoke on. As believers, we can know that God the Father chose us before the foundations of the world. He sat his love, set his love upon us. He chose us. And then God the Son accomplished our salvation by you know, through his shed blood on the cross. And then God the Holy Spirit seals us now for our inheritance for all of eternity. 
So these amazing truths, but then starting in chapter 4, he then moves into ethical obligations lived in response to those truths. Not to earn grace, but to live in response to that grace. And the first ethical obligation that we see in chapter 4, verse 3, is that we might live together in unity. So our unity as the church is a major priority for the Lord Jesus and for his apostles. So it should be for us too. Now in verses 20 through 22, 21, he gives us the who, what, and the why for this unity. Then in the remaining verses, 22 and 23, he says the same exact thing, just in loftier language. Okay, So we're just going to kind of combine these together. But if this is a major priority for Jesus, I think we should just think about it for a moment. Who is included in this prayer for unity? Well, what does Jesus say? He says, not only these, again, those are the disciples, but also those who will, future tense, those who will come to believe in me through their word, that is the ministry of the apostles. So again, this is not just a blanket statement. He's not just praying for anybody. He's praying for those who do and will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like he did before. But here's the difference. That prayer earlier was directed towards them back then, and this prayer now is directed towards us in this room. I don't want you to make light of this, and I know that you wouldn't, but don't move past this, okay? Because listen, if you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way tomorrow, next week, or next year, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that in those horrid moments that he was about to experience, that even in this moment when he was with his disciples, in this moment, he had your name in his heart when he prayed verse 20, 2,000 years ago. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had your name on his mind, your name in his heart. When he was on the cross, he had your name in his mind and your name on his heart. That's what verse 20 means. Those who will believe. Do you believe he was praying for you right here? And what was he praying for? That you and I would be united to all the other people that he was praying for in verse 20. That's the who of this prayer. That's significant. Then verse 21 through 22 and 23, we get the what. What is the nature of this unity? There's a lot of folks out there that try to you know, force this unity. You know, so they'll, they'll either compromise truth, strip away some components, essential components of the gospel, so that more people would come into the church that, that you know, would find it more comfortable in the church if they didn't have to believe in the resurrection or things of that nature, which that, of course, isn't true unity. That's certainly not what Jesus is talking about here because it's not built off truth. Then there's other uh, folks and in, in congregations and churches throughout the ages that have tried to form unity by basically outlawing any form of diversity. Like, let's bar those people because if it's just us that are kind of similar, we'll get along and, of course, we'll be unified. But that's not true unity either because he's not talking about conformity. He's talking about unity and diversity. So what is the nature of this unity that Jesus is praying for in the upper room discourse? Well, here's a couple key words. Even as and just as. He says, Father, make them one even as we are one. Make them one just as we are one. What that signifies is that this is not a unity that you and I can create. This cannot be forced, this unity. All right, because this is a spiritual reality. You and I are to, to promote it and, and certainly to, 
to protect it, but we can't, but we certainly cannot create it because this is a spiritual reality. By faith, we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby we're united to one another. We cannot create this. It's a gift that's given to God's people. It's, it's what theologians call mystical union. And there's other examples of mystical unions, like the Trinity, one God, three persons, the two natures of Jesus, truly God, truly man. The, the relationship Jesus has with his church, we're the vine, or he's the vine rather, we're the branches, we're organically tied to him. I can't explain that outside of what the Bible says. There's a mystery to it. You know, trying to explain the Trinity beyond using God's word and the creeds that we have throughout church. I mean, I can't explain it to you. I just know that, yes, there's one God and three persons. I just know, yes, Jesus is, is truly God and truly man. I know that, and I can't explain it to you beyond what Philippians 2 says. I, I mean, it's just hard. It's a it's spiritual reality, right? And so this is what Jesus is saying. I, I pray that they would be one just as we are one. They would have unity and diversity, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one God and Father. It's a gift, but we can promote it. And brothers, how do we promote this unity that Jesus is praying for? We promote it by exalting our shared commonality in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is what happens when we exalt our shared commonality in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is our shared commonality? That we were sinners, dead, we were goners, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been made alive. All right, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That is our shared commonality. When we make that the most important thing in our lives and the most important thing about us, that will automatically unite us to other Christians because these other barriers are no longer all that important. I mean, just think about the original disciples. I think I've said this a number of times. I read it somewhere. I just find it funny. But imagine that first discipleship group, those first 12 disciples of the Lord Jesus. They could not have been more different. I mean, he had John who was the quiet, contemplative type. He was the beloved disciple who nestled himself on the breast of Jesus. Then you have Peter, who's about to chop a man's ear off, okay? They probably didn't a whole lot to talk about around the dinner table. You have an introverted man, an extroverted man, a quiet man, a violent man. You have Matthew, who worked for the Roman Empire. Then you had Simon the Zealot, who wanted to burn down the Roman Empire. Now, when they came into the relationship with their Lord Jesus, Jesus became the most important thing about them, but I'm sure they still had their own personalities and their own political leanings. That just no longer defined them. What defined them? Being dead and now alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that's the most important thing about us, we're just going to be united to people that we normally wouldn't get along with. It's kind of like cancer survivors. If you're a cancer survivor, you are united to other cancer survivors because you know what that's like. If we are in Jesus Christ, we knew what it was like to be dead, but now to be alive, and how could that not unite us to other people who've experienced the same thing? Right, so they're, they're, they're united together in that way. So we pray for that. Also, we preserve it. How do we preserve it? You know, applying 1 Corinthians 13 to our relationships with one another. I know that's usually a wedding passage. It's not a wedding passage. It's how the church is supposed to love one another. We love each other like Christ has loved us. We bear each other's burdens. We're long-suffering. We forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven us. That's how we preserve this unity. That's what Christ prayed for that night. And we ought to be praying for that too. Why did he pray this? Well, he tells us in verse 21 through 23. So that the world will know that the Father has sent the Son. That former prayer for unity was for their protection, our protection. Now his prayer for unity is for our collective witness to the world. The only reason that those of us who probably would not have gotten along before are now brothers and treat each other as family, 
The only explanation for that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is Jesus, the night before he dies, praying that we would be united for our benefit, but mainly for his glory, so that the world will know the power of the gospel. So that's the what he prays for. But brothers, he also prays about us. And we see this in verses 24 through 26. And this is just, and it's, it's, it's the holy of, if this, if this whole passage is the temple, verses 24 through 26 is the holy of holies. I mean, I just can't begin to really wrap my brain around it, but let's try. This whole prayer is a private prayer. We know that, right? But this is kind of a private chat within that private prayer. It's like Jesus knows that John is listening in. So Jesus turns his back to have a private chat with the Father to talk about all these disciples, but he talks loud enough so John can still hear. That's kind of what's happening in verses 24 to 26. What were the Father and the Son talking about in secret? Because they're talking about us. What are they saying? This is what Jesus says. He says two things. Verse 24, Father, I have a desire that these future believers, those men in Amen Bible study, would see my glory. That's the first thing that he prayed. That word desire, it's not really a great translation. The better translation is will. Father, I will that they would see my glory. When he's, he's not being defiant when he says that. He's not being bossy with the Father. He is laying his heart out. He's saying, Father, I will that my friends in March, whatever today is, in 2023, those guys gathered together studying your word, my word, would one day see my glory. That's what he says in verse 24. Just think about this in context. His disciples, we have seen his humiliation. He was born a baby. He became a servant, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2. We're about to see him sweat blood in the next chapter. Then we're going to see him stripped and beaten, naked, spit upon. We're going to see nails driven into his hands and to his feet. We're going to see his cold, dead, limp body thrown into a tomb. We're going to see that. We're going to see his humiliation. And what Jesus is praying here, God, I will that they would also see my glory. I will that they would see me at your right hand. I will they would see the angels prostrate fall. I will that they would see all the saints of heaven gathered around the throne, worshiping God the Father and the Lamb who was slain. Father, I will they would join me in heaven. That was his prayer for you back then, brothers. And guess what? He is our high priest in heaven who is currently interceding for us now. If you ever want to know what Jesus is currently praying for you now, a great place to start is John chapter 17. He is praying that we would join him in the new heavens and the new earth. And as those who are in Jesus Christ and experience weakness now and shame now and humiliation now, we too one day when we behold him in that beatific vision will also be glorified. That's what Jesus was praying for. But not only that, he was also praying in verse 25 through 26 that not only would we see his glory, but that we would also know his love and be filled with it. My greatest problem in my spiritual walk is that I doubt my father's love for me. And I know that's yours too. So here's Jesus 2,000 years ago in the upper room with all of our names on his heart saying, Father, Please make them know how much we love them. That's what he's praying. 
Can you imagine? I mean, that's what Paul prays for us in Ephesians, that we would know the dimensions of the Father's love. We could never know the full dimensions of the Father's love in this life, even if we grow in faith, even if we grow more dependent on His love for us. We're never going to get there in this life. So there's a future component to this, that on the day to come when we behold Him in all of His glory, there's not going to be a doubt in our mind that He loves us. There's not going to be an impediment between our love for each other. We're going to be filled with His love. And just reading that, just think, like, how in the world can this be? I mean, I believe the gospel. I struggle with it sometimes, but I believe it. But I have a hard time thinking of myself as a gift that the Father has given the Son. I have a hard time thinking that little old me, wretched me, miserable me, who got in an argument with my spouse earlier this week that I'm not very proud of, you know, me, that he prayed for me back then that I would see his glory. And that I'd be filled with his love. How in the world is that possible? Well, it is a pickle. One that's perfectly encapsulated in that phrase that Jesus describes God at in verse 11, Holy Father. Look at verse 11, Holy Father. That is the only place in Scripture that God is called Holy Father. Only place. And how is that possible? Because those are kind of contradictory. Holiness is something that you would describe king or judge that if you... Yeah, obey, and if you don't, there will be wrath. Father is a familiar word, one that describes intimacy, a loving relationship. So here Jesus throws them together. Holy Father, how is that possible? By the way, we need both of those. We need a holy God. We need God to judge unrighteousness. We need him to put the worlds to right. But we also need him to be loving, because if he's going to be just, he's going to be just with us, and so we need him to be loving and merciful. How is God both holy and merciful? Well, the rest of John's gospel explains that. The cross explains it. Paul himself tells us that at the cross, God is both the just and the justifier. He is the holy one who loves sinners. The holiness, love, and righteousness, and kindness of God kiss at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus lives the perfect life that we had to live but couldn't, and he paid the debt that we had to pay so we wouldn't have to. Think about this. Everywhere in Scripture, let's just start with Adam in the garden. God gave him, Adam, our first parent, a command and a promise. Obey and you shall live. But he disobeyed. Then he gives our second Adam the same command but a different promise. He says, obey and you shall die. And Jesus did it, knowing that he's going to die. And why did he do it? Well, Paul tells us, God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the mid-19th century, um, Karl Barth, who had a, it was a very imperfect man with imperfect theology, but really the only evangelical liberal Europe, <laughs> brilliant man, was asked if you could summarize the Bible, and all the theological truths that you've learned throughout your career, in one sentence, what would it be? And he said, it would be a song my grandmother taught me. Jesus loves me, yes I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the cross proves that. Friends, this is the one who in love prayed for you 2,000 years ago and is the one who's praying for you right now. Praise be to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, with Paul, we join. Would you please help us by the power of your spirit and in your kindness know the dimensions of your love for us. 
May we never grow dull with it. May we never grow tired with the basic truth of the gospel that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And may we be so overwhelmed by that that our great desire would be to follow you in this world, making you known as the original 12. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.